Uh, friends, I think, it's, uh, I think it's universally attested that the least favorite words for students is this. Uh, take out a piece of paper and a pen. Today we're going to have a pop quiz. Now, even saying these words, quite honestly, produces a little bit of a gag reflex in me. I don't know about you, because, because quite honestly, pop, pop quizzes are designed, they're, they're meant to probe what a student knows in that moment without a late night cram session on the evening before, right? A pop quiz is just a snapshot. It's, it's not definitive, but it is illustrative. And friends, while all that is true, I can't think of a single student in the entirety of the whole world who really loves a pop quiz, right? No, no student is saying like, yes, I'm so excited that I get to do this today. I have wanted to show you my knowledge for three weeks now, and finally I get to do it. Like, I know nobody who's doing it. Maybe like a young Ted Lasso would do that, right? But, but most of us in our right mind simply don't like them. Why? <laughs> because testing and being tested is tough. Now, church, in my experience, it's not just students who bristle at testing. Now, there are some of you in the room, no doubt adults who love a good quiz show and you want to get a team together for trivia night, but that's not the kind of testing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about late nights in a dimly lit hospital room as you wait for answers. I'm talking about those endless sea of tears as a marriage crumbles under somebody's indiscretion. I'm talking about the the wordless response to the HR department as they wish you well in whatever your next employment will be. I'm talking about the bone-crushing fatigue of having to live from paycheck to paycheck, or talking about the unfathomable decision that's being made between do I get medical care or do I put food on the table. But I'm talking about the midnight cries into the universe wondering where is God in all of this? Uh, testing can be tough. You know, on any journey, on any journey that you undertake, there will be moments that will test you, moments in which you will either rise to the occasion or <laughs> you will wondrously tank. You know, in one of our first opportunities that Aaron and I to, had to travel as a married couple, there was there was moments of testing. Uh, Aaron and I, along with three other Americans, had decided to use our break from teaching to do a bit of travel, and we were going to go to Rome. All of us were living in the, in the Slovak Republic at the time, and we were ready for a well-deserved break. And so what better to do uh, than when you're living in Europe to travel around Europe when you're on a break? And so Rome was our destination. Uh, Rome via Poland, the Czech Republic, and Austria, and then finally, finally into Italy. And getting around Europe, quite honestly, getting around Europe on a train is immensely fun and shockingly easy uh, until it's not. It was, um, it was late at night, and we were somewhere between the border of Poland and the Czech Republic. 
In fact, the train, the train had passed into the Czech, but before you could land sort of at the first station in the Czech Republic, uh, the border patrols, both from Poland and the Czech Republic, were having to check your visas. And as we waited there, giving our visas over not only to the Polish authorities, but also to the Czech authorities, it became quite clear quite quickly that one of our travel companions was not allowed to enter into the Czech Republic. Now, we, we, were, we, were a little, we were a little just sort of shocked at the moment because we were just passing through the Czech Republic on our way to Austria. But, it, but as it turns out, uh, the Czech government and the Canadian government were having a little bit of a tizzy. And so, so our Canadian friend wasn't allowed to enter into the country without an entry visa. Now, who knew that the country who came up with the honey crawler, right? Like, they, they don't play nice all the time with people in Central Italy. Who had any idea that the Canadians had such a sordid history? Like, we didn't, right? But there was a moment... There was a moment as we're living between two countries that a question arises, what would we do? I mean, Rebecca couldn't enter into the check, so the question was, well, do we, do we go home or do we try to find a new way to get to Rome? The decision was made pretty quickly that we should return home, but to do that, we had to go back to the Polish side of the border where we hung out in a train station that was about the size of my living room, and we waited around for another train that would head back into the Slovak Republic, as it turned out about six hours from then. And nothing, I believe, tests you like a late night in a train station in the middle of winter on the border between Poland and the Czech Republic where the bathrooms are closed for cleaning for six hours. There were several bushes outside that got uniquely watered that night. We were, as a team, and certainly as a married couple, we felt tested that evening. Testing is tough. Now, by God's grace, all of us were able to make it back to our hometown with bladders intact. But the question remained, would we go to Rome the next day or would we stay in our hometown? And while the rest of our friends decided to go to Rome, Rebecca included in a route that didn't include the Czech Republic, uh, Aaron and I were done. We had been done in by the trip, this time of testing, this moment on a border between the Czech Republic and Poland, I think it's fair to say we didn't rise to the occasion. In many ways, just barely married, we tanked wondrously. You know, on any journey, there are moments, there are certainly moments that test you, and sometimes, sometimes you rise to that occasion. And sometimes when you get home, you decide not to travel again. You know, our journey, church, through the season of Lent, these 40 days leading up to Easter that began this past Wednesday, where we noted, right, that at the beginning of any journey, there's always a bit of, 
kind of anxiousness or nervous energy as we await the events that will unfold along the way. Those events that we'll have something to learn from, something to learn about the world, but probably more importantly, something to learn about ourselves. And truthfully, we tend to learn the most in times of testing. You know, if you, if you joined us on Wednesday night, you'll remember that Jesus' journey of rescue begins in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where He sets His face towards Jerusalem. In other words, He has resolutely made up His mind and His heart that He is going to one destination and one destination only. It is clear in that moment what Jesus' aim is. It is to rescue humanity and to do whatever it takes to accomplish that task. But we also learned on Wednesday night that that moment in Luke chapter 9, 51, that it was not just a beginning, it was also an end. It was the end of Jesus' will as He entrusted Himself into the Father's hands and into the Father's plan and whatever it would take to accomplish that plan. See, our journey through Lent is a journey with Jesus. It is entrusting ourselves to go wherever He leads, even when, even when it leads to times of testing. But friends, we don't enter into those seasons of testing without a Savior who's entered into it first. So let's look at that text, which we heard Andrea read just moments ago. If you've got a Bible, you will want to grab it, or there's Bibles in the pews as well. And we're going to go to Mark, Mark chapter 1 together, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Now, uh, those of you who call this place home, you know, of course, that before we can deal with the text, we have to first deal with what? The context. Yes, we have to first deal with the context. Now, here's the deal. There's only eight verses of context, right? Only eight in Mark's gospel. Not much has happened. John the Baptist got up, did some preaching, right? And now we're at verse 9, okay? So Mark chapter 1, verse 9, here's what we read. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We get to the end of that text there, in that moment, I imagine if we were in some other church traditions, we get a lot of amens and hallelujahs, right? This is the, the father's voice saying to the son, you are my son whom I love. I'm with you, I'm so well pleased. Yes, amen. Preach, like that's what we want to hear. And some of you in this room are smart and you're astute and you're saying to yourself, self, I feel like, I feel like we read this text not too many weeks ago. And if you're one of the smart, astute people in the room, right, is saying to themselves, self, I think we read this text a couple of weeks ago, you are correct. We did. In fact, this was the exact same text at the beginning of the season of Epiphany. That season that God is revealing himself in the person and the work of Jesus. And when we read that text at the beginning of Epiphany, this is where we ended with these beautiful words of the Father to the Son, 
I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. And we made note then that Jesus really hadn't done much up until that point. At least there's not a record of much of what he's done. It's not that Jesus sort of stacked up all the right bits of goodness and all the right things that he did in order for the Father to say, I love you. We learned in that moment that God says, I love you, and you are my son, and with you I'm well pleased. Why? Because he's simply the son. But today, today we don't end at verse 11 We move on to verse 12 where Mark says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. Yes, preach. Yeah, that's good stuff. No, what? It's interesting in this text, church. Really interesting that Jesus here in verse 12 doesn't sort of accidentally wander into the desert. He isn't aimlessly wandering and finds himself in a place of testing, but rather, by God's Spirit, he is led into the wilderness on purpose. And what is that purpose? To be tested and tried. Now, Mark's gospel is really a gospel of efficiency and of action. Mark is trying to move through the Jesus narrative with relative speed. And so there's very little detail here in Mark's gospel about what's happening in those 40 days. But if we were to double-click on this text by going either to Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4, then we would get the unabridged version of what's happening here in Mark 1. What's happening to Jesus as he's in the wilderness? What's happening to Jesus as he's tested by the evil one there in the wilderness? Lots of us who grew up in the church are probably familiar with the story that Jesus, taken into the wilderness on purpose, has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And just so we're clear, right, that's not like a, like a social media fast. Right? That, that's not a Netflix fast. That's not a TikTok fast. That, that's no food for 40 days and 40 nights. And the evil one comes to him and says, hey, hey, if you are who God says you are, if you are the Son of God, then why not take these these rocks here and just turn them into bread? What's it going to hurt? Imagine the moment. I, I, I struggled to get through a day without eating like five times, right? Like I'm a grazer. I graze all day. To go without a meal creates a certain level of hunger pain in me. Imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Matthew says casually in his gospel, Jesus was hungry, and we think, No kidding. 
Imagine the moment as the evil one comes and says, hey, what's it going to hurt? Just, just change it. There's a way out of your hunger. There's a way out of this wilderness. Just, you know, use your power and use your authority and make these rocks into bread. Not a big deal. I imagine that for Jesus, this moment is a time of testing. Jesus has a choice to make. Do I actually call on the power and the authority that is mine and change these rocks into bread? Or do I entrust my journey into the Father's hands? It's a simple choice in some ways. Do I draw on my power and authority and turn these stones into bread, or or do I entrust myself into the Father's hands? You know, if we were to back up into the Old Testament, we would see a very similar story with the people of Israel. Israel, shortly after their rescue out of Egypt, they're thrust into the wilderness where they're allowed to wander for 40 years. And there are moments where God, in His goodness, provides for Israel this flaky bread on the dew of the morning. And Israel has a choice when they see that manna. They have a choice to to rejoice in God's goodness. They have a choice to rest in God's provision or, well, if we were to back up into the story, we'd read Israel saying, yeah, this is nice, Lord, but you know, the meat pots in Egypt, like those, those were amazing. Like, I would love to go back there because what fed my belly there was so rich and so good and so full. Almost like saying, you know, rather than entrust ourselves into your hands for this journey, we'd rather go back to where we were. Maybe there's another way around. Church, on this journey with Jesus that we have together, I'd love to tell you that there won't be times of testing, times that are hard, times when you experience the brokenness and the sin of the world, times when you're going to wonder, is God around? And in those moments, in those seasons, we'll have to ask a question. Will we entrust ourselves into the Father's hand for the sake of the journey, or will we try to find our own way? There's a a theologian who wrote a wonderful prayer book, and in that prayer book, the prayer that he prays is essentially this, Lord, when I come upon moments or seasons of testing, when I come upon moments and seasons of 
suffering, when I come upon moments and seasons, when I have to endure a broken world. The prayer is this, don't let me convince myself that I know a way around, but rather allow me to entrust myself into your hands that we might go through it. I think lots of us, if we're honest, this text in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, where the Spirit takes Jesus out into a time of testing, I think lots of us would rather just kind of skip that text. Because if Jesus has to enter into testing, if Jesus on His journey is going to go through suffering, those of us who follow will undoubtedly follow into seasons of testing, into seasons of brokenness, into seasons of suffering. I've got to be really honest, church. The Christian church in the West, particularly the Christian church in the United States, we, we do not do suffering very well. We are, whether we like it or not, are a fairly affluent Christian church. In the grand scheme of the global church, we don't understand suffering like our sisters and brothers around the world. So we have this tendency to want to skip over this text, to avoid our suffering, to go around those seasons of testing. But church, we have something to learn from our sisters and our brothers around the world. We have something to learn from Jesus there in the wilderness. As Satan says, hey, what's, <laughs> what's the big deal? Just change some of these into bread. Jesus would in that moment say, oh, <laughs> man doesn't live on bread alone but on the very word that comes from God's mouth. I'm content to live on the provision of my Father. Again and again and again through that whole wilderness moment, we'll see Jesus entrusting Himself into the Father's care. Fast forward into the Gospels, we'll see it again there in His garden as He's praying about the oncoming cross he knows that he's entering into what will be suffering. And there is a moment when he prays, right? We know it well, when Jesus has to say, it's not my will but yours. I'm going to entrust this journey and this season of suffering into your hands. It's between every labored breath, arms stretched wide as people say, well, if you are the Son of God, then come down. Interestingly, Jesus has a choice. He could call on power and authority and come right off the cross. Instead, in that season of suffering, He entrusts Himself into the Father's hands so that you and I, friends, so that you and I, that you and I might have his life, that you and I, as the writer to the Hebrews said, would have one who has been tested and tried in every way that we will, 
We have one who is able to do it perfectly so that you and I might have life. So that you and I can enter into seasons of testing and brokenness and suffering. But when we enter in, we do not enter in alone. But we go with the one who says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We don't enter into those seasons of testing without the Lord. I think we're, we're quick to miss here even in Mark chapter 1 as Jesus is led by God's Holy Spirit into that desert that he goes with God's Holy Spirit. That he's never alone. And though you and I in our seasons of testing and trial and suffering will probably tank wondrously again and again and again and again in those moments of suffering and testing and trial. Our Lord and our Savior Jesus would rise to the occasion. If following Jesus is not about somehow getting outside of testing or trial or struggle or suffering, but it is about entering into those seasons knowing that God is with you, And because we know that God is with us, we can ask some questions about what God is doing in us and to us in those seasons, how it is God is actually shaping us in faith and trust in those seasons. Lots of you know this. This isn't going to be news to you, but one of my favorite activities in the entirety of the world is to make bread. I don't know if you know this, but making bread is violent. It's, it's sort of a violent endeavor. You're probably like, what kind of bread do you make in your house, right? So there's a part of the process called kneading. It's a really fun word, kneading, right? It literally means to kind of fold over and press in violently to the dough. Now, if you want to see really, really violent kneading, like if that's a need for you, a need to knead, that's weird. If it's a really need, right, to see violent knead, you've got to watch the French bakers, I don't know what it is about France, but they like to beat their dough against the counter. Literally over and over and over and over again, picking up the dough and slamming it on the counter. Bread baking is violent. You know, you knead dough or you slam it against the counter so that over and over again the gluten strands get broken down and rebuilt stronger broken down and rebuilt stronger, broken down and rebuilt stronger, broken down and rebuilt stronger. You need, you throw that dough against the counter so that you build up the strength of gluten. Why? So that when I do the final thing, which is to put it in the fire, to put it in the oven, the dough is strong enough to rise and hold its shape. Our season of testing is often, I think, God shaping and molding us like dough, kneading into us, breaking down our muscles so that we can be built up stronger. That doesn't make the hurt go away, but it does allow us to look at what God is doing in the moment. 
You know, as we journey through this season of Lent, as we journey through life, there's going to be lots of testing, lots of trial, lots of hurt, lots of suffering. And I pray that we could follow the lead of our Savior, knowing that He's with us in those seasons, knowing that God is working on us in faith and trust so that we don't work our way around it, but with Him go through it. So that in the days to come, through all of that testing and through all of that strength building, not only will Jesus rise, but we will too. So may God strengthen us today and every day in this journey in His name. Amen. And now, friends, may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ today and every day. Amen.